Oh, I took my jacket off. Feels a little better. How y'all doing today? Now, this is new for me. I haven't done this in a long time with a microphone in my right hand, so bear with me. This me well, may I go around? Never mind. New Year, same God. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Now, New Year's Eve tells us something about the human obsession with change. We celebrate New Year's with parties, parades. There's going to be a big ball dropping in Times Square at New York City. By the way, I was finally able to go to New York City and stand in Times Square. That ball don't look all that big when you get there. It's kind of let down how small it is. But there'll be a lot of people there celebrating and waiting with great anticipation, enthusiasm, and expectation, and eagerness for the beginning of the new year. We also begin to plan to make changes for the new year. I'm sure some of you have thought about New Year's resolutions. Am I right? Oh, come on now. Am I right? You can say amen. Uh, one year I decided I'd go on a diet, and I lasted about two days, and I was into that. <laughs> amen on that one. And so much of our time and energy is focused on the upcoming new year. I think it's also critical that we take time to pause and reflect on our past year. I don't have the stats in front of me, but we've come a long way as a church this past year. God keeps providing us what we need. He is faithful. He keeps his promises. And so as I look over this past year, I look at 2024 with great anticipation and enthusiasm and excitement about what God has in store for us in the new year. One thing's for sure, we're a year closer to the return of Christ than we were just a day ago. We all long for dependency and consistency and stability in our lives. But it's like a roller coaster or a merry-go-round. We enjoy the ride, but we're also probably relieved when we get back on solid ground. For example, change can be like that. It can be exciting and new, but going through it may not be that exciting and new to us until we get back on solid ground. Like that roller coaster ride. I remember being on one with my wife as we went up the lift hill. I said to her, this hill did not look this tall from down there. And we got up there. I was like, whoo, that's, that's pretty good size. In the upcoming year, we might have some sorrow. We've lost. Well, let me rephrase that. We haven't lost them. We know where they're at. We've lost some great people, of men and women of God, who have gone on to be with the Lord this past year. We'll work through our sorrow in that new year, but we also celebrate what we have planned. Or we might be even dreading the challenges of the new year. And that's what that sermon series is all about, owning the vision. My prayer for all the membership here at Forest Baptist Church is you would own that vision, that you would own the ministry here. I'm not planning to go anywhere anytime soon, but the ministry should not stop or falter just because I get sick or I go home and be with the Lord. There should be someone to be able to step in the pulpit and preach. There should be teachers waiting in the wings. And we're going to talk about that more and more, and that's going to begin on the second Sunday of the new year.
be praying about that. And let me just get you this one thought. Uh, if you look at Matthew ch- chapter 28, it's called the Great Commission about making discipleship. So I will tell you this. Everything that we do as a church has to be built on that principle about making disciples. That is our marching orders. Now, as I've told you last week and the week before last, I do get wrapped up in numbers sometimes, but I am thoroughly convinced in my heart of hearts that if we focus on discipleship, the numbers will happen. The volunteers will come. And our text reminds us that although we see a lot of change in our world, Emmanuel, God with us, which every good gift comes from him, and look at verse 17, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Let's look at verse 16 as we start our way through this text. It says, do not be deceived. Do not be misled, my beloved brethren. Now, that phrase, my beloved brethren, is a clue to tell us that he's speaking to believers, not non-believers. In fact, you could translate that, my dear brothers and sisters. He is talking to believers here. And the complexity of temptation and sin in the Christian life requires the warning against self-deception. Biblical scholar Kurt Richardson, in his commentary on James, puts it this way, quote, If the great temptation of the sinner is unbelief, then the great temptation of the believer is misbelief. Now, I hope every time I stand in the pulpit, whoever the preacher may be, you need to have your Bible with you to make sure that I'm preaching the truth. Baptists, particularly Southern Baptists, we have claimed to be people of the book, but sadly, our knowledge of the book has slipped a quite deal way down over the last few years. We need to know what the book says and make sure that we believe the right things. See, a believer may have a fundamental faith in Christ, but he or she has adopted falsehoods about the life of faith. See, our faith in Christ does not mean we are not still susceptible to bad things or bad theology. We have to guard ourselves against self-deception. In this case, as you read the whole verse in context, it's talking about God tempting us to sin. He doesn't do that. But God allows trials to come to see if our faith is genuine. It's easy to praise God when everything's are going well. Woo-hoo, praise God, I got all my bills paid. Woo-hoo, I got a new job, got a new car. But when things happen, Sometimes at a blink of an eye. And what's the tragic thing that we face on this earth is when someone passes away to be on with him. The separation, the hurt, the grief is so strong. That's when our faith is tested. Now, I'm not saying you don't grieve. Yes, you grieve and you have tears. But through those tears, you have hope. Now, chasing the rabbit here. Bear with me. Biblical hope is not like... Uh, saying this morning, I hope that the the sun is still shining this afternoon and it's 75 degrees outside. That that hope, it may happen, may not happen, but the hope I have in Christ is steadfast and sure. I can speak to it as though it's already happened. That's the hope that we have in Christ. He allows trials and temptations to come to our life for our own growth 
identification. Look back in chapter 1 of James in verses 2 and 3. He writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, I know that's the first thing you do when you have a trial in your life. You break out and consider it joy. Why is that? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, Webster defines endurance as the ability to withstand hardship or adversity or the ability to sustain a prolonged stressful effort or activity. He's building you up. So when those hard times come, you can stand firm in your faith. Jesus was asked about the end times. What will it be like? And in Matthew chapter 24, picking up in verse 10, he says this. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Something that jumped out at me when I first looked at this passage is lawlessness is increased. Have we seen that happen here in our own country? Where lawlessness is increased? Are people's love growing cold? Where people betray one another and hate each other? We see a lot of hate all over the news. All the war and the fighting and the hatred. But the one who endures to the end He will be saved. So I want to exhort you and encourage you to remain faithful, to continue to endure, to don't give up the fight. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Anything you do for God is never in vain. Now, you may not see the fruit of that seed you may plant, but heaven will declare what's all been done. I want to encourage you. I believe we're headed for some even worse times in our country's history. Now is the time to make sure that you're ready to go. Now is the time to read your Bible and commit to God to remain steadfast, to be immovable. And no, you will not be able to do it on your own. That means we have to bend our knees and get down and confess, we cannot do this on our own, God. We need you. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live out this calling, to show people the truth. Because if we really love people the way we confess we love people, then we will tell them the truth. In this context about God tempting you, he will never entice you to do evil. This is what James is telling them. Self-directed believers are like sheep without a shepherd or incapable of recognizing the sign of the times. What I mean by self-directed, having a lifestyle that is a living according to your own ideas and feelings and rejecting and ignoring the wisdom and the guidance of God and his word. 
I got to say this again. I hope and I pray that you're picking up your Bible every single day and searching God's word and studying it. And not only putting it here, but more importantly, in here. There may come a day when you won't be able to find a hard copy of the scriptures. You know, overseas, this past Christmas Eve, there were attacks against our brothers and sisters on Christmas Eve. A lot of those places where they go to jail because of their faith in Christ, there were write passages on the wall of the jail cell by memory. And let me tell you, when the temptation comes and attacks come, you may not have time to run to your copy of the Bible and look something up. That's why it's important to put it in here and here. You can call on it in a moment's notice. See, there is an insidious connection between misjudging the role of God in temptation and perverting the truth about God's nature. While God does not prevent us from experiencing trials, he is not cruel or inconsistent or unreliable or shifting. And this is where the argument comes even stronger in verse 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. God is not involved with the evil we do when we're tempted. He's not involved at all. Instead, he is the only source of any good in our lives. He is the source of the good fight that was in us to resist temptation. That we recognize what the law of Christ is and shows us about ourselves and our firm resolve to pursue the works that belong to faith. He's the one that empowers us to do good in the first place. In fact, the faith that you have, how many believers do we have in the house? Say amen. All right. Who gave you that faith in the first place? It wasn't you. It was God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So even your faith in Christ is a gift from him. Who convicts you of sin? It's the Holy Spirit, right? I thought of this on the way here this morning. Do you hear me or are you listening to God? What I mean by that, yes, you hear my voice, but listen to his voice through the preaching of the word. Because that word listen doesn't necessarily mean to hear it, but it means to put it in practice, to walk in it. The gifts of God are good because they never foster the evil desire or sin. They are perfect because they are the fulfillment of his will for his people. Everything good, whether intrinsically, intrinsically or so or arising from good motives, comes from the goodness of God. The range of God's giving includes both the goodness of the created world in general and the perfect gifts bestowed upon all who put their trust in him. God is a giver of all good things. Well, Tim, I have this job. I worked all these hours to get this house. Well, that's great and wonderful, but who gave you that wisdom and the strength to have that job in the first place? It was God. Well, I went to Walmart and brought those groceries with my own money. I'm the one. No, well, who gave you that job in the first place? Who gave the farmers the land? Who sent the rain? Who let those crops grow? Who let the people pick it? It's all God. So our entire source of every good thing is from him. And he qualifies it even more. Look down at verse 17. 
coming down from the Father of lights. Just like the wisdom that comes from above in James chapter 3, 15 and verse 17. All gifts come down, not from below, where they're misused because of evil desire. Only from above, from the creator of heaven and earth. The father of lights. Because God is both the creator and sustainer of heaven. He's both creator and sustainer of all the creation. Listen to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth the host by number. Listen to this. He calls them all by name because of his because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. God calls out the stars by name. Now tonight, when it gets dark around 5.30, don't have any lights on outside. Most of you live out in the country. I want you to go up. It should be a clear night tonight. I haven't looked at the weather. But anyway, look up and see those stars. Every star that you can see, he calls out by name. That's the knowledge of our God. And I've said this before, but even the thoughts that you have right now in your head, he knows. He knows what you're going to say before you even speak it. At Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35, reads, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves war, the load of hosts is his name. That's the God that we serve. And he, now he qualifies, so we have all these good things are from God, coming down from the Father of lights. Now look back in verse 17. With whom there is no variation or shifting saddle. Literally, shadow of turning. The God who orders the stars, planets, the tilting of the earth, the rotation of the earth around the sun, to give us seasons and days and years, the God who controls all these changes in his creation does not change himself. His governance. His lordship over all things is impeccable and benevolent, bringing them to the end that he has willed for them. He does not change. He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Now, a way of illustrating this is to say that we live in a scientific world where our understanding of consistency and immutability is mechanical. What I mean by that is this. We expect machines to work completely in predictable ways. We expect computers to always treat our commands in the same way. How many of you said this? I'm guilty of this. This stupid watch. This stupid computer. <laughs> we expect the computer to do the same thing over and over again, right? Never changing. Or maybe we think of scientific laws. But we can count on gravity. You know, you jump off the roof of this building unless something 
catches you or arrests your fall, you're going to hit the ground. By the way, when people say there's no such thing as absolute truth, gravity is an absolute truth. I don't care where you are in the world. If you jump off a roof building, you're going to hit the ground. doesn't matter if I'm here in Forestburg, if I'm in Virginia, or I'm in England, Scotland, where I'm at. There is a law of gravity. That is an absolute truth. So when you witness to somebody, feel free to use that. But what makes computers and gravity consistent is that they're unfeeling. But we are humans, let's face it, we're messy and complicated. Machines and laws of nature are consistent, but they're apathetic to our predicaments. The computer doesn't care. The laws of nature do not care. And sometimes we take that way of thinking and apply it to God. In other words, if he cannot change, if he does not experience change as a result of forces outside himself, then that must mean that he is apathetic. Now, sadly to say, much of theology has been warped by trying to reconcile God's classic attributes of immutability, what he does not change, and impassibility, that he is not swayed by uncontrollable passions with his clear concern for his creation. In other words, if God can't change, then how can he be apathetic or caring about us? But God not changing can make him seem at first to be uncaring, but his unchanging attributes, his purposes, and his character do not make him apathetic. Rather, he is our firm foundation which we can build. We read in Scripture that God changed his mind. That's a whole other sermon for another time, but we read in Scripture passages where God changed his mind as a result of people praying. Now, we're called to stand in the gap. If you look in the Old Testament, tons of stories. Moses, when you read some of the prayers of Moses, it's almost being like, man, you, you're that, lack of a better word, arrogant to talk to God that way. But his argument basically went, God, you took these people out of Egypt. And now, because you want to destroy them, because you're upset with them, what will they say about you? Your name is at stake here. He wasn't arguing for the people being good. He was arguing for God to remember his name is at stake. You see, God's very jealous about his name. He doesn't want his name to be ruined or dragged through the mud, as we would say. But we as God's people, we are called to intercede on behalf of each other, on behalf of our community, on behalf of our county, our state, and our nation, indeed, around the world to pray and intercede for those, especially for those who are lost, and pray for each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, on God's unchanging character and his attributes is where we have our firm foundation. In verse 18, he wraps it up by saying, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We have faith because God has given us spiritual birth. I remember praying this morning, and Brother Roger was talking about being born again, and wow, what a gift of God that is. He creates a complete and perfect life. He does not cause temptation. He creates or produces life. The contrast here could not be more pointed. 
and he gives this new birth to believers by the means of his truthful word. That word of truth is virtually synonymous with the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the instrument which God implants new life in the believer that produces a harvest that God has intended since creation of the world. It's the gospel that produces this new life. You know, God is taking back his creation one life at a time. As the gospel is shared, the Holy Spirit convicts, the person is convicted. They repent and they turn to Christ. In that moment, they are born again. There's new life in them. Why do you do that? Look at verse 18. So that we would be a kind of first fruits among, literally, of his creatures. That those of us who are saved out of lost humanity will be first fruits of God's saving work. The word of truth is the seed that produces a fruit-bearing plant. God's word that brought forth the first creation he spoke creation into existence is the same word that regenerates inside a human heart. It's powerful. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe in the power of God's word? Do you believe it still has power to change lives? To break people forth from uh, addictions? Everything? Yes, it does. We'll have to claim that more and more as time goes on. There's power in God's word. His gospel is the answer. If you want things to change, I'm going to use a, a quote I've used before by, uh, he's pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Church, Dr. Tony Evans. He says, you want a world that's made up of better nations, and if you want nations made up of better states, and you want better states made up of better counties, and you want better counties made up of better cities, and you want cities made up by better communities, and you want communities made up by better churches, and it all starts with us, the gospel, what changes things. Quit relying on Congress to change everything and make it perfect. It begins with the proclamation of the gospel. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on the book of James, says this, quote, The purposes of this faith is that Christians should stand as a first installment, first fruits, first fruits in the universe or rent the plan of God, good gifts that he's yet to give. We have a God that never changes. And the same gospel that was preached over 2,000 years ago that's being preached all over the world right now in, in here, even in our own country, is, has not changed. It's the same message that God took on human flesh, God with us, that he was born in a manger. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> if he came like he deserved, I doubt we had record of it. The King of kings and Lord of lords, born in a manger, was a servant of all, lived a perfect, sinless life, always doing miracles for other people, being patient with people, uh, doing miraculous healings. For example, you know the woman at the well? 
He's talking to a woman, which back in those days for a rabbi to talk to a woman, that was a big deal. But now he's a Jewish rabbi talking to the Samaritan, which is even more of a big deal. And he's having this discourse with her that he reveals who he is. He's the Messiah. Now, he told her not to go tell anybody. Now, I wonder what happened when she went back to her village and told people about this Jesus. We don't have record of it. I just wondered, did she really keep crying? I bet you that amount of money she went and told somebody. Think about this Jesus I just met down at the well. How about the guard? There in the garden when poor Peter, he wasn't a great big, <laughs> tell he was a fisherman, wasn't a swordsman by trade. He picked up that sword, he, he took off the ear of that Roman soldier, and then, got, and then Jesus healed it back. What happened to him? You can't tell me it didn't change his view of who Jesus is. Or how about the Roman guard that we do have record that after Jesus died, the centurion fell down and said, truly, this is the Son of God. What happened to him? There's so many stories out there we do not know. But there's power in that gospel. It's the power of the gospel that led me here. Led me to surrender to preach. <laughs> it's that God who never changes. Even when I deserve for him to walk away from me, he never has. He's always faithful and so patient with me through every step that I've taken. See, as the new year begins at midnight tonight, we have freedom not to hold on to the good gifts of last year with clenched fists or to desperately seek the next good gift in the year to come. We have freedom to participate in God's unchanging purpose for his creation. Ready for it? Redemption. We have the opportunity to participate in that mission, the redemptive, the redemptive work of God in all people's hearts, regardless of race, origin, ethnicity. It does not matter. We have the opportunity to work for goodness, for justice, for beauty, while standing on the firm foundation of salvation brought for us by the God who is always faithful to his promises. This past Christmas, we look back at all the prophecies that were made years and years before the coming Messiah. And what has he promised? He said, I go prepare a place for you. If I go prepare a place for you, I'll come back to you. So where I am, you can be also. He is preparing that place even now as I speak to you. And in even given moment, he's going to come back. It can happen any moment. And I find myself like the Apostle Paul torn. I mean, God, I'm ready. Just come on. I can't take it no more. But at the same time, I have co-workers. I have family members. I have friends, people in the community I know that are lost, that need to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. God knows that too. He is waiting, patiently waiting for all to hear the gospel message. And ladies and gentlemen, dearly beloved, that is our mission. And as our text reminds us, as we go out with this mission that amidst the constant change in the world, that every good gift come from him Emmanuel, God with us, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. New year, new challenges. 
we have the same powerful, unchanging God. What did Jesus promise us? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What else did he promise? You receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You have a gift, all of us. You have the gift of the Spirit, and there's lots of them. You, God created you to be you. There's no other you like you. Don't lose me now. Your fingerprint is the only fingerprint line in the entire world there ever will be or ever was. He created you the way you are. He loves you. He also likes you. He likes the way you solve problems. He likes the way you sing to him. Now, on a lighthearted note, I would tell you, the Bible tells us to make a joyful noise. It doesn't say I have to necessarily be in key, but I'm telling you, beloved, he loves to hear his routine people sing his praises. Oh, he loves that. He loves to hear you sing out to him. He loves it when you come to him, asking for his guidance. Or when you're crying, he just wants to put his mighty arm around you and pull you close and remind you that he's right here with you every step of the way. Like the old hymn says, what a mighty God we serve. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand now. I'm going to do things just a little different. Go ahead and stand up, if you would. First of all, if you don't know who Jesus is, you've never given your life to him, now is the time. I'll introduce you to him. It'll change your life, and your life will never be the same. If you've done that, something's come between you and him. You haven't been living the way you should. Come to him. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't already know. In spite of what we do, he still loves us. In spite of the knowledge he has of us, he still loves us. Would you come and just pray? talk to him or maybe you're looking for a church home love to have you here as together we serve side by side serving this God but let me take it just a little step further where are my people who are intercede who will come down here pray for our world our world leaders who pray for those who are suffering from these wars Who will come down here and pray for our nation, our Congress, our president? We need prayers as we're going into this new election year. Who will come down here and pray for the state of Texas and our governor and our state legislator? Uh, Who will come down here and pray for Monte County? Who will come down here and intercede on behalf of Forestburg Community? And the school and the school board. I'll invite you as the music begins to play that you come down here and you start interceding and you start to pray because, dear beloved, we got some hard times ahead of us. But we're going to win them by getting on our knees Amen. and seeking his face. Amen. Heavenly Father, we 
thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not change. That you're the same God of yesterday and today and forevermore. As we read the stories in the Old Testament, the way you led your people out of Egypt and part of the Red Sea, the way you gave them manna to eat in the wilderness. Father, the way you continue to work with them with your long-suffering patience as we read the stories of the major and minor prophets. And Father, you're the same God that sent your son here to be born in a manger in a little town of Bethlehem. You're the same God who rose him from the dead, victorious over the sin and the grave and death. You're the same God who promised to come back to get us one day. You're the same God who has promised that your word would not return to you void without accomplishing it what you wanted to do. Father, we need you. We cannot do any of this without you. But we need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your strength and your courage. May your spirit continue to move in us and around us in this moment draw men and women and boys and girls to your side. We praise you for who you are this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.